All right, I almost feel like we should circle up the chairs, but <laughs> I'll leave them where they are. So yeah, we've been um, doing Ephesians uh, since May. May, June, July, August, over six months. And we finished up last week, and Todd Hunter in this week asked me to sum it up in 20 minutes. So here goes. So when I think of Ephesians now, I think of three distinctive features of Ephesians. One is that this appears not to be a problem or crisis letter to this church or these churches in the region of Ephesus. Now we know that a lot of Paul's letters to churches were problem letters. There was a doctrinal problem or behavioral problem that provoked the letter. So we know, for instance, that in Thessalonica, they had just quit working, <laughs> thinking the Lord was going to come any day. Paul had to write them a letter <laughs> and say, continue working, for this is God's will for you. We know the Corinthians were a mess, a raucous bunch arguing about food, sex, worship, idols. They got a letter. They got three letters, actually. We have two of them. The Colossians, their Christology was kind of wonky. They got a letter. The Galatians were falling back into legalism. They got a letter. The Ephesians, it's just not clear that there was a single behavioral or doctrinal issue that provoked the letter. This seems to be the shining example in the New Testament, maybe with, with one or other two exceptions, where Paul just got to tell his heart to a church that was maturing slow and steady. Sure, he does talk about issues, relationships between believers, the ever-present racial issues between Gentiles and Jews, master and slave relationships, family, husbands and wives, parents and children, and then many of those things that threaten those relationships like anger, envy, slander, careless speech, immorality, lack of wisdom, but this is everyday stuff, stuff that gets in the way of relationships. So first of all, this does not seem to be a letter that is a crisis letter. It is really kind of Paul's heart for a church like this that is just maturing slowly and surely. So that's the first thing when I think of Ephesians. The second thing I think of is that um, the first three chapters of Ephesians is famous for not having a single imperative not a single command to do something unless you count remember as a command. He does say remember. But it's a funny letter in that way. The first three chapters are spent instead just telling them how much he would like them to know deeply all the spiritual blessings they have in Christ. And the first three chapters are just kind of this amazing list of all the blessings that they have in him, and then it contains two prayers. One, that they would know God more deeply, and they, at the end of the first three chapters, they'd have capacity to open more deeply the love of Christ. So that's the second thing I think of. Just Paul listing for them the spiritual blessings that they have in Christ. And the third thing that, having gone through this series with Todd and others, that I think of is that when Paul does turn the corner in chapter four to give them some instruction, 
He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This word walk is actually kind of like a musical theme. Those of you who listen to classical music, you know that classical music has themes that return almost like choruses and popular music. And sure enough, the word walk occurs five times in the last three chapters of Ephesians. This continued return to this instruction to walk in various ways. Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Ephesians 4.17, no longer walk as Gentiles do, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, I've noticed in some translations, they actually prefer not to translate the word as walk, but as live. Live worthy, for instance, instead of walk worthy. Or lead a life worthy. And of course, that's what Paul means, right? Paul means when he says the word walk, he means live your life a certain way, walk this way. But you know, as a human myself, (laughs) I usually prefer the concrete over the abstract. I like Paul's original walk. And as an English professor, I prefer the metaphor. And so I... I want to talk a little bit about walk right now for a moment, since it recurs so many times. Now, of course, walking was the primary mode of movement in the ancient Near East. There was no avoiding it. There was really no other way to get around on a daily basis. And it was time-consuming. It moved slowly. It made one sometimes vulnerable to the elements as well as to others, as the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us. Walking for us, of course, is more of an option for travel, and it's, uh, it's not preferred <laughs> for most of us. It does have its virtues, right? Walking does have its virtues. It builds patience in us. We notice things when we walk. It's active. It can be social. You can walk together with people or see people. We're not locked up in our cars or drowned out by motorcycles. But probably, I would say here's the most important thing about walking for us. And it's that it's boring. I think that's the most important thing. That walking is boring. And why would I say that? Because sooner or later, if you notice when you're bored and you're walking, your mind suddenly wants something to do. The legs are doing something, the body's doing something. But the mind and the heart, now they want something to do. Now, if you had the good fortune to be bored as a child... Um, you probably had to develop some kind of internal life. You probably had to be creative, imaginative. And this would work itself out in games or inventions or hobbies or riding bikes or friendships. You had to develop loves. You had to give yourself some kind of internal life that worked itself out in these various ways. If you didn't, as a kid, you felt you would actually die of boredom. (laughs) You felt, I could die of this. We would say, as adults, you could die of emptiness. But in the process of kind of solving the problem of boredom for yourself, you would actually become a self. (laughs) You would develop intelligence and creativity and imagination. You would actually, those are the building blocks of the self. When my daughter says she's bored, I'm saying, that is awesome. You are on the cusp of becoming a self. 
Now, the problem for us now is that when we're bored, we can plug into someone else's creativity and imagination, right? Their music, their games, their images, their language. And while being exposed to someone else's heart and mind is, is not a bad thing and can be a great thing, mostly these days it's not like a gentle walk in the garden of someone else's heart, right? It's, it's this external world that is charged with images and sensations and adrenaline that's being pumped into us uh, because people are trying to get us to be basically addicted to their commercial products, sell us things, counting on the fact that we are empty and hungry and bored. And they're there to rescue us from our boredom. They're there to give us a, an internal world, their, inter- their external world, into us. So walking and boredom are, are important. So when Paul says walk, he knows that what makes all the difference is not just the living of life, but it's what is happening in us as we live a life. It is how we are walking. And of course, he doesn't mean the direction. He means this ongoing discovery of who we are in God as we walk, the kind of person he wants us to be as we walk, the particular gait that characterizes us. Sometimes from a far way off, you can tell who someone is, even if you can't see their face, just by the way they're walking. People can hear me walk because I shuffle. Paul says there should be a recognizable Christian gait, so to speak, a, a walk, a kind of character to the Christian as they walk. And of course, this is what Paul is inviting us to, to walk worthy, to walk in such a way that we show that they are, we are these people of God. Now, this word, um, this very first word, walk worthily, this first phrase, you would walk worthy of the calling after three chapters of telling us who we are in Christ. Blessings we have. Eugene Peter says this word worthily is the word on which the whole letter pivots. I have a little uh, audio visual here. No, just a visual, not an audio. There's the audio. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, that's took two of you. Fantastic. <laughs> um, the word actually means, the word worthily, axios, when he says walk worthily, actually means or comes from the word for scale, like those old-fashioned scales, and I happen to have one right here. The word oxios means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and the word worthy is scale. Um, for those of you who may be listening to this online later, what I've got up here is one of these uh, scales that has an arm across and two pans hanging from it and chains. And the idea, of course, when you actually use this, was equilibrium, right? If you, had a, if you wanted a pound of flour, you would put a pound weight in one thing, and then you'd dump enough flour in the other so that by the time it equals, you knew you had a pound. That's, of course, how it worked. Now, what Paul's been saying for three chapters is that I've been giving you this, what God has given you is this spiritual weight, these spiritual blessings, He calls us our calling. Interestingly, the calling here is not the calling to do something. The calling is that we have become something in Christ. We are children of light. We are in love. We can walk in love. So the weight that's been given to us, the loving weight, the substance that's been given is we have become something in God. We were dead. We have become something 
It is this loving substance that's been given us, the Christ himself, the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't go through the first three chapters, but just listen to some of the words in your reading today. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us before the creation of the world. He predestined us to adoption into his family. He gave us redemption. He lavished riches of grace on us. He made known to us the mystery that this was going to go to all people. We are included in Christ. These are direct quotes. He marked us with the promised Holy Spirit. And then in chapters two and three, he made us alive when we were dead. He brought us near to him. He preached peace to us. He made us members of his household. He gave him himself who would dwell among us as in a temple. This is the weight we've been given, the loving substance of Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians will say, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And then he will say, we are coming into possession of a weight of glory. A weight of glory. If you read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, the people who visit heaven, who are not yet the people of God, they're not even heavy enough to push the grass down in heaven. They have no weight in C.S. Lewis's heaven. In fact, the grass pricks their feet like pins. It is the angels in heaven, the people of heaven that have substance, that have weight. And so while Paul does offer specific behaviors, of course, in the last few chapters, he is counting the fact that we have a substance, that we are weighted, that we have been given like a ballast of love and light in our life. And so, in fact, what has been given us is the love and light of Christ himself. Paul says, this is what God has given you. Walk in a manner that reflects what you've been given. That registers the weight, the love, the light that you've been given. This is not a heavy weight. This is the substance of a self rooted in God, filled with light and love. In fact, that's the other metaphor that Christ uses, or that Paul uses of Christ in our life. If one metaphor is that we've been given this kind of substantive self in God, and that we are to walk worthy in a way that reflects, that, that is a kind of equilibrium with what we've been given, he now says, my prayer is that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So the other metaphor he uses besides to walk worthily, to walk in a way that reflects what you have already, is the metaphor, I pray that you would actually be filled with the love of Christ. That you would have the capacity, the strength in your spirit to be filled with this tremendous breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. That your spirit would actually expand like lungs to be able to hold the tremendous riches of Christ that are infinite. He says, you know, it wasn't like that before. And he says even now, if you don't receive that, 
we become tossed back and forth by waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching and cunning. So he said, for those who don't have that, they're like, they may be filled, but there's nothing in them. <laughs> they're just blown here and there by every wind of teaching. There's, no, there's nothing there. Simply the hot air that other people, the commercial world has blown into it. Doesn't mean that isn't the image of God. It is the image. This is, <laughs> this is the image, but there's no weight. There's no substance. No, what we want to be more like is the, is the balloon that has something in it. <laughs> be filled with the measure of the fullness of Christ. This walk will look different. This walk will look different. Because you see, it's not a matter of that God did his thing, and now we're supposed to do our thing. Well, he gave you these, now you do it alone. No, we are filled. We are filled. And Paul's prayer is that like an ever-expanding balloon, we can have the capacity to know the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ. And so Paul's prayer in the book of Ephesians is that we would receive and continue to deepen and expand our capacity to feel the weight of light and love so we would walk in love, walk as children of life, walk in wisdom. And my question just as we're closing as we have a short time reflection is this. How have you felt the loving weight of God in your life? The presence of God, the height and length and breadth and depth of Jesus' love. How have you in your past felt that? For some of you, in coming to this church or maybe previous to that, you have learned certain rhythms of living daily confession that you learn on Saturday or Sunday and take into your daily life. Prayers of intercession. Songs of worship. That as you walk the daily, mundane, sometimes boring life and your spirit and heart are looking for something to do, you have found a rootedness and a weight of riches in your soul through daily liturgy and prayer. For others of you, It is prayer with others. It is fellowshipping. It is speaking truth in love to one another. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that have expanded your capacity to receive the love of Christ in the daily walking, day in and day out. And this has changed the way you walk. For others, it's the Jesus prayer in times of pressure or stress or centering prayer or it's just letting the regular trials of life make you depend more and more on Christ. But in any event, this is Paul's prayer, that you would walk worthily, that all of these spiritual blessings would begin to expand in your soul and give you a presence and a weight of glory, a treasure in earthen vessels. And our calling is actually to receive this more and more deeply for our capacity to expand that we might walk as children of light, walk in love, walk as wise, and walk worthily. So in our short time of reflection, how have you been invited to walk worthy, to daily feel the substant, weighty love and spiritual blessings that God offers?